Hi everyone, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. I'm very excited because tomorrow I'm getting on a plane uh, and going to uh, Amman to start a pilot of our new UN training course, which is going to be working with 25 senior leaders uh, from, in this case, <clears throat> the countries around Jordan, uh, on their influencing skills. So it's kind of coming out of the work I've done on LSE and how change happens. And we've been working for months, a team of us, to produce some really interesting uh, a mixture of face-to-face -face and online teaching materials. And uh, this is the face-to-face -face bit, and it's going to be really good fun. So I'll report back on that next week. But fingers crossed, it's a pilot. It's, there's bound to be some rough edges. But I'm optimistic it's going to be really good. But it looks like I can keep the blog going because enough people are, um, are sending good good stuff in for me to uh, post. So uh, I'll be able to uh, keep the blog ticking along while I'm away. Okay, <clears throat> back to this week's posts. Uh, links I liked. There's, I get, there's such a lot of good stuff on the interwebs. You know, I mean, some, some weeks you just have to celebrate. Uh, I love maps, for example. Um, the map I chose to stick on this week was um, uh, the true size of Africa. And that's taking uh, the, the actual geographical size of Africa and comparing it to other continents. And because Mercator, the Mercator projection that's still used, massively uh, ex uh, exaggerates the size of um, continents and countries away from the equator, Africa always looks smaller than it really is. And actually, it just eats Europe for breakfast when you look at the actual um, uh, geographical expanse. In fact, the Congo alone is about the size of Western Europe, I think. So just nice, they've, they've dropped in the continents into the continent of Africa, so you can see just how much bigger Africa is. So I quite like that. Um, a shout out for the New Humanitarian, which just does a really good weekly roundup of its uh, uh, work on crises, both the ones that are in the news, like the Ukraine, and ones that are, are in danger of getting forgotten. Um, it's a really good summary. Uh, you can sign up to it for an email. And then just random stuff. So how about this for a paragraph? Sex slave woman wanted for burglary. A woman who had five pit bull puppies cloned in South Korea is wanted in Tennessee on burglary charges, lawyers there said today. Joyce McKinney, 58, was accused of telling a 15-year-old boy to burglar house... <laughs> Sorry, I can't do this without laughing. To burglar house to raise cash to buy a false leg for a horse. Sorry. To buy a, a false leg for a horse. She fled Britain in 1977 to avoid a trial for allegedly abducting, <laughs> abducting a Mormon missionary and making him her sex slave. I mean, there is so much in that one paragraph, as somebody said on Twitter. You know, there's a whole book or several books right there. Just brilliant. I mean, what on earth was going on there? And then finally, um, some interesting stuff on how Americans actually see uh, the world. Um, <clears throat> They think that more than 20% of the U.S. population is trans, Native American or Muslim or making more than $1 million a year. The actual percentage in each case is 1% or less. But interestingly, they're actually pretty accurate the, the, uh, when you ask people in surveys on other things like lower levels of, of wealth. So they're quite good on the percentage of the population that earns over 100,000. They just are very bad on how many people earn over a million. Um, also, the percentage that has a passport and the percentage that's obese. So I don't know what that says, but it's just kind of interesting stuff you get on the Internet. So, you know, 
all praise to um, you know the internet and its creators. All right, the second post was by um, Roba Aldao, who's a, an Oxfam a public health and wash practitioner in Gaza. That's water, sanitation and health to you um, in Gaza. <clears throat> and it's called Poo Periods and Priorities. What does research tell us about the different views of practitioners, populations and academics about wash? We recently tried to find out how aid practitioners and affected populations think about water, sanitation and hygiene, wash, and how they differ in their views. The results of our survey, and there's a link to the full survey, hold important lessons for WASH programmes and their funders around the world. Unsurprisingly, the top gaps highlighted by the people affected by crisis and practitioners, consulted across 35 countries, were the need for better water supply and provision, sanitation access and coverage, weak hygiene practices and knowledge, and poor solid waste management. But a more interesting pattern emerged from these findings. Big differences between practitioners people affected by crisis and the academic lit literature on what matters in WASH. Looking at the results in a specific location, Gaza also highlights that although high-level global needs may be similar, locally they take on a unique character and need a tailored response. Some examples of the gaps we recovered, uh, we uncovered rather. So menstrual hygiene management and lack of hygiene materials was a key priority raised by women affected by crises but was not within the top 10 priority gaps identified by WASH practitioners. Big blind spot there. Solid waste management was a top, practitioner for, uh, top priority for practitioners and people affected by crisis, but did not feature in the top 10 topics examined most frequently in the literature. Lack of water containers and poor storage practices was a top priority for people affected by crisis, but wasn't mentioned in the top 10 WASH gaps in all of the other interviews. Lack of access to hygiene, toolkit, hygiene tools, kits and products was among the wash gaps most prioritised by affected populations, while it was not within the practitioner's priorities. At the same time, community engagement was among the priorities mentioned by the wash practitioners, while it was not identified by all the other views. That's interesting. Like, the wash practitioners said it's all about community engagement, the community said not so much. Um, <clears throat> so I think, yeah, the point here is that if practitioners and academics are serious about uh, tackling the problems that most bother and affect poor people, they have to align their work, whether it's practice or, or research, more closely with the views of those people and not with their own interests or their own um, biases. So that's a really nice, I think that we could do that on a number of other issues, it doesn't have to be WASH. Just do a survey and compare academics practitioners and people on the ground on everything from you know food supply to um, uh, violence against women to whatever it is and we get a lot of I think we get a lot of gaps like that which would be quite instructive so nice nice research uh, idea there now then for the rest of the week um, I went into Eeyore mode about a thing I've been working on for ooh, I don't know 10 years or so um, which has various names but adaptive management and thinking and working politically are two of them also doing development differently and there's various words um, and these are the, and this has been come this was called a second orthodoxy by Graham Teskey and it's a bunch of approaches which basically said aid needs to become more flexible need to adapt to changing situations or, or adapt as you as you learn as you go uh, and that we have to rethink the way aid works to get away from 
grand, rigid plans to this more flexible dancing with the system kind of approach. I do a lecture on it. My students have all uh, uh, read a bunch of these papers. And uh, the first post on, uh, on, on this, and this is about me having a rethink about this stuff, right? I've been doing this for a while, but a few things triggered uh, a rethink. And, and the first one was my students, actually. So they're very good at pointing out the contradictions in your thinking. Uh, and this year's LSE lot uh, seemed particularly good at it. Um, so they, they challenged me on, on what is the power behind this whole adaptive management, thinking, working, politically movement, because it is incredibly top down. It's basically kind of people in capitals, people in uh, donor head offices or people in um, management consultants getting better at pushing power down to the, 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 you know, to the people who are most affected, but it's still basically a top-down exercise. And I thought that was really interesting. <clears throat> so, yeah, so they pointed this out uh, and said, you know, there, there, basically there's no crowd of developing country aid workers marching on HQ chanting, what do we want? Adaptive management. Um, but in fact, it's worse than that. I'm still haunted by a com conversation with a veteran thinking and working politically person from Nigeria who'd been actually doing this for decades, who after one of my presentations said, and I can't remember the exact words, but I'm paraphrasing, oh, I see, so you've taken all our experience, couched it in new language and jargon, and now we have to relearn it. And I thought, oh my God, I'm part of the problem. That's awful. I'm, I'm you know, this is a form of appropriation. And it's a, there's a whole, you know, um, category of people of which I am one, who's specialised in coming up with new ideas and new ways of uh, describing things. Some of them new, some of them are wine in new bottles. All of them are pain in the ass for the people who are trying to do stuff on the ground. So I've had been, I've been, you know, that was a couple of years ago and it still sits with me and is a painful, was a painful moment. So that's the first one, the link to power. The second is the link to systems. So a few years ago, I wrote a paper with an incredibly dull title. Theories of change for promoting empowerment and accountability in fragile and conflict-affected settings. Uh, but it argued, it's got lots of hits, and it argued that uh, donor theories of change largely fall into two camps, do more and do less. The do more camp, which includes most of the adaptive management crew, argue for diving into trying to understand local context through a combination of political economy analysis and listening to local staff and partners more, and then using lots of smart methods to respond, adapt, and respond again in an effort to bring about change. These are my guys. This is the dancing with the system thing I was talking about. The do less camp say, well, who are you trying to kid? Context is too complex and opaque for outsiders or even insiders to fully understand. Forget all your fancy analyses and theories of change, let alone picking winners, and think about systems. How do you build resilience, encourage new possibilities, that can mean anything from strengthening property rights to basic literacy and health to better broadband. You do that and then you leave local people to come up with stuff that you have never imagined that actually brings about change. Now, my problem is that I'm fascinated by the first approach, hence all these papers I've written and blogs on adaptive management. But the second group and the second group tend to be a bit too laissez-faire, leave it to the wonders of the market, a bit right wing in my view. But I think they might have the stronger argument. Now, um, yeah, I'll come back to that. There was some good pushback in the comments when I put that on the blog. Third, fragility. You know, even when 
adaptive management projects have got off the ground and started to deliver results with a few with a few notable exceptions they've been vulnerable to staff or ministerial turnover in the donors the donors are the weak link or other events that come along and trigger a rush back to the safety of business as usual log frames plans all the the all the apparatus of the aid industry which tends to prevent people being adaptive Fourth, another little light bulb was placing adaptive management in its historical context. My students got me thinking about a, a question that is always worth asking. Why now? Why so much work on adaptive management and TWP thinking working politically now? Back in the 2000s, Ros Iben was pointing out that aid workers routinely lived a double life. On the ground, they improvised, back to their best guesses and generally thought and worked politically. They then airbrushed all the mess out of this work in their reports to HQ, turning them into neat linear chains of planning and execution to keep their bosses happy. Going back even further, my old boss at Oxfam, Mark Goldring, uh, used to tell us how as Oxfam country director in, I think it was Bangladesh, he could turn off the telex. Okay, period, period technology there. But by turning off the telex, he essentially shut up his bosses that his bosses could not reach him and he could just get on with work working on the ground in Bangladesh responding to local needs so two things have changed first is the growing cult of compliance risk management results means that you are constantly scrutinized in what you do and risks are taking risks is more often punished than rewarded and that has all been facilitated by IT you know the death of distance People are WhatsApping you, uh, emailing you um, constantly. There is no escape you know, in any corner of the world. So your boss is sitting on your shoulder watching what you're up to. You can't turn off the telex. You can't turn off the internet. Um, <clears throat> so maybe it occurred to me that this whole adaptive management TWP is actually a defensive. It's a, it's a push back. It's a defensive way to try and win back the ground that was lost through those twin forces of death of distance and a cult of, you know, um, uh, of measurement. And I hadn't really seen it in that light, but that would explain why some of the old guards say, nothing new here. But the point is, you can't do the old stuff anymore. Interesting for me anyway. Finally, and then I've talked about this before, what happens when your big new idea becomes a thing, right? The aid business is a maelstrom of new ideas, often old wine in new bottles, it's true. But fads, fuzzwords, buzzwords, fuzzwords are like buzzwords, only fuzzier. They come and go at a dizzying rate, fueled by think tanks and policy entrepreneurs eager to make their mark. And yes, I am part of the problem, back to the Nigeria conversation. If you clamber your way to the top of the intellectual heap, what awaits you? On the plus side, adoption. People take your idea, try to put it into practice, and then you can learn from all the experiences and hopefully aid programmes have more impact. But there's a downside dilution. While the first cohort of early adopters are passionate and committed, if your idea cuts through, as the jargon goes, the next lot just want to know what to do, what template to fill in, what toolkit to use. And those seeking funding will all start adaptive washing, sprinkling the language over their bid documents to show they're fully up to date with the latest jargon and thinking. All very northern and exclusive and either annoying or baffling to those on the ground actually trying to make change happen. Uh, so pretty depressing a straw to clutch at the hype cycle it's amazing how often I come back to this it's a very simple 
uh, abstracts or drawing of the hype that surrounds a new idea. So there's a trigger, yeah, new technology, new idea. Suddenly everybody gets very excited about it and you get a peak at inflated expectations. Think renewables or microfinance or, I don't know, um, social, social impact bonds, whatever, right? And then people start to realize that actually there's some problems and you get a sudden collapse of the hype and you get a trough of disillusionment. And everybody's piling in on microfinance and saying, actually, it's just a new form of slavery. Women take out massive debts. They're, they're coerced by their you know, um, communities to repay them even when they can't afford it. It's all a terrible thing. And then you get a kind of bounce back, which the graph calls the slope of enlightenment, where people just calm down and start to analyze where this new idea works and where it doesn't. And you get to a plateau of productivity, a place where this is actually a useful idea. It's not a magic bullet. It's not the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's a useful addition to the toolkit. And that's where things end up. And uh, it's just quite interesting to put adaptive management on there. But actually, I just suddenly thought, wouldn't it be fun? I've, I've obviously got um, a problems with my sense of fun. But wouldn't it be fun to take all the uh, these aid fads and locate them on the um, on the hype curve. And if you want to have a go, please do and send it to me. If I've got nothing else to do, like when I'm sitting in the departure lounge uh, on Friday tomorrow, um, I'm going to start doing this. And I think let's see what we come up with. In terms of pushback, Tom Aston was very dismissive. I think you've badly mischaracterized your own categories of more and less. They're not divided by whether they do political economy analysis, listen to local staff or not, and use clever monitoring and evaluation. They just come to a different judgment on what's feasible in particular contexts. And I think he's right. You know, adaptive management works for some things, institutional reform maybe, it doesn't work for other things. So that's almost like we're already getting to the plateau productivity on that. And that's fine. Very good. And then to follow up my sort of moan about adaptive management being oversold, we had five people from the Asia Foundation, which is a really good organization. This was Nicola Nixon, Kim McKee, Peter Yates, Sumaya Saloja, and Sule Yi. Uh, and they've been actually listening to civil society organizations in Asia. And they asked them about what they thought of adaptive management. So I'll read out what they say. Throughout 2021, we spent many hours talking with civil society organizations about adaptive management. We engaged with over 100 CSOs in 70 countries in workshops on adaptive management run largely at the behest of donors and other INGOs, international NGOs, and in some cases requested by civil society organizations themselves across South Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean and the Pacific. What do we find out? Here's our five key takeaways. One, it's largely driven by the development elite, which was the point my students were making. Two, it's still more theory than practice. You know, one of the gurus on this is Graham Teske, who says, thinking and working politically, I see lots of thinking. I don't see much working, right? There's, uh, people are thinking politically. Where's the working politically? Three, the language is alienating. As well, I'll read out the paragraph. I've, I've skipped the paragraphs on the other two. As always, language is power. Because many local implementing partners have not really been part of the adaptive management conversation, as a body of thought, it risks alienating and excluding those who are not conversant with its terms. Back to me talking to my Nigerian colleague. Four, Donors put strict limits on what can be adapted. Hmm, yeah. 
Civil society organizations point out that major changes in program direction can be difficult if the program must remain within its original budget and even more so when changes involve testing new ideas or hypotheses. More frank and open conversations are needed on the red flags and goalposts. Sounds like some new sport. Grounded in trust relationships. Five, fifthly, governments are getting in the way. Given the tight and often tightening regulation of the civil society sector in many of the countries from which our participants joined us, the question of how to engage with regulatory bodies and other government stakeholders was raised as a, as a significant concern. Indeed, government regulatory bodies that require detailed reporting from local, local organisations for any alterations to agreed work plans are the elephant in the adaptive management room. That's pretty depressing. Um, and it's new on me. I hadn't thought of that point. But it's not all bad news. Overall, and quite encouragingly, there's lots of enthusiasm. So how can we do adaptive management better? Here are our thoughts, and please add your own. These are the thoughts of the Asia Foundation authors. Adaptive management shouldn't be presented as a whole shiny new thing. Arguably, the original driver was the desire to address the rigidity of systems, donors, multilaterals, host governments, that didn't facilitate more nimble programming, particularly given the scale of resources churning through them or subject to their scrutiny. That is not the case for civil society organisations, who are just as likely to come at it from the perspective of being highly agile and perhaps needing the systems to structure and process the learning that flow from adaptive management rather than the need to be more agile. They're very optimistic about CSOs. I guess they're talking about grassroots CSOs. I, that's not my experience of big ones, but hey. Investigating and understanding those efforts can only make the field richer. More needs to be said on the nitty gritty of funding and resourcing adaptive approaches particularly where implementing partners are held to narrow standards of value for money. A small bet for a donor might be a big bet for a CSO, not least if the failure of that bet means money is lost or reputations tarnished, even if there are lessons to be learned from the experience. All these considerations must be part and parcel of being safe to fail. Carving out space for meaningful reflection also costs time and money, for which partners need to budget if they are to prioritise. And more thought needs to be put into the local politics in which adaptive programming is meant to happen. This includes the full gamut of actors who have a stake in and power over the programme's outcomes, particularly those such as host governments who may prefer to see something fully planned and predictable. There is untapped potential here for donors to bring to bear the full weight of linked up development and diplomatic agendas to improve the quality of partner government engagement and oversight. Indeed, perhaps working through diplomatic channels to ease intense CSO oversight is a very practical way that donors could be pushed, pushing back against broader democratic backsliding. Nice. Um, I'm going to leave it with that. that. That I thought was a really intelligent and nuanced uh, critique. And then next week, as I said at the beginning, we had some more upbeat uh, analyses of this whole adaptive management thinking and working politically thing. Until then, have a great weekend. And I'll try and record something from Aman. If not, I might be a bit late with the next podcast. Bye, everybody.